Thank you, Bonnie. God is good. All the time. Cleveland Amory tells a story about Judge John Lowell of Boston. One morning the judge was at breakfast and his face hidden behind the morning paper. A frightened maid tiptoed into the room and whispered something in Mrs. Lowell's ear. And Mrs. Lowell paled slightly, then she squared her shoulders resolutely and she said, John, the cook has burned the oatmeal and there is no more in the house. I am afraid that this morning, for the first time in 17 years, you will have to go without your oatmeal. The judge, without putting down his paper, answered, It's all right, my dear. Frankly, I never cared much for it anyhow. (laughs) Now there's communication in marriage. 17 years of oatmeal that he didn't even want. And he didn't even bother to tell. I watched that movie Up uh, with Casey and Melanie last week. And uh, I love the courtship. You, You need to see this. Of the little boy and the little girl. And they have these great dreams. Someday... They're going to go to Paradise Falls together, but someday gets pushed further and further into the future as they save their money together. There's always something that they need to spend for. The car breaks down, the house has a problem, and they empty out the money that was set aside for Paradise Falls. And one morning they wake up and they look at each other and they have become old and they are just there together. And the unspoken question is, Did they ever really fulfill their dream? There's a happy, happy ending in that story. I won't spoil it for you, but I thought about that as I looked forward to this Tuesday. Two days from now is our 25th wedding anniversary. Now, I know in a crowd, thank you. (laughs) Melanie deserves that applause. I'm very hard to live with. But I know in a crowd like that, like this, 25 years is not that impressive. But I'm grateful for uh, every day and every week and every month and every year. And so this morning, as I often do on this weekend of the year, I want to teach you from the scriptures about marriage. As we uh, reflect on the scriptures, I'm aware that there is a good bit more corporate wisdom in this room than I possess individually, but I would like to point us to the scriptures, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. There's a popular TV show, you may have watched it, I I haven't watched it, called John and Kate plus 8. I'd like to talk to you about you, your spouse, plus God. And uh, let's stand together as we read God's word today, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father... Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith 
with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Did you know that the way you relate to other people speaks volumes about your relationship with God? And the way we relate to God must inevitably be revealed in the way that we treat one another. So he uses this word, Malachi uses this word, break faith. He uses it five times. And the image is we have one father and one creator who's been very faithful to us. Isn't that our testimony? Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. The Lord has not broken faith with us. Everything he's promised, he has fulfilled. He keeps all of his promises in Christ Jesus. And so we are grateful for God's faithfulness. But he says, in response, the ancient Israelites have not been faithful to the Lord. And they have reflected this even in their choices in marriage. Some of them, here's the first problem, have married those who are not believers in Yahweh, who are not followers of God. And still others have chosen to, to act. There's another translation of this to act treacherously toward their spouses. The image is one of adultery, which leads to divorce in this context. And he is saying, God is watching over you. God is the witness to all of your relationships. Everything you do. I read in Proverbs 5 this week. Everything we do is done in full view of the Lord. This television series called John and Kate plus Aid is a a popular television series, apparently. Again, I've, I've never seen it, but it's apparently about a husband and wife, and they've been followed in media for over five years now. They've been very popular in evangelical circles because they were assembly of God. They wore uh, T-shirts that had Bible verses on them. They made the circuit of churches. Evangelical churches invited them to come and speak. They've published two New York Times bestsellers about their marriage, and now the word is their marriage is in trouble. And it's caused a great media stir. They have, they have eight children. They have twins who are eight years old. And they have sextuplets who are like, oh, three years old or something. Again, I haven't watched it. But some of you, somebody will know and correct me surely after the service. But, but when I look at that, I'm reminded that marriage was never really intended to be lived out for a camera to be watching all the time. Aren't you glad somebody doesn't have a camera on your marriage all the time? I mean, it wasn't intended to be that way. And even though when I do weddings, I always say, in the presence of God and these witnesses. But the thing is, these witnesses, they go to their house and you go to your house and they don't watch you and we don't live. But there is one witness who is always with us. He He loved the wedding. He wants you to invite him to the marriage. 
And this God is with us, watching us, so that he may help us, so that he may strengthen us. God's not there waiting for us to mess up so he can strike us with lightning, but rather God is with us that he might strengthen us in our commitments to each other. We have this image we'll see later of faithfulness in ministry. Susan's been with us 35 years as our preschool minister. That is the image of faithfulness. By contrast, he says, you have broken faith with God. And you have broken faith with each other. And the worshipers were coming to church and they were saying, we don't get it. We just don't feel very close to God. It's like we make our offerings and he doesn't accept them. He doesn't give us what we ask for. Why not? And God says, because I'm watching over you and I cannot bless you when you are breaking faith, when you are acting treacherously toward one another. We serve a faithful God. Let us live faithful lives in full view of the God who is watching over us. Notice the first concern is that we would take theology seriously when we are choosing a mate. Here is the concern. He says, Judah has taken the daughter of a foreign God. You see it there in verse 11. It's not that they're intermarrying interculturally. It's not that they're marrying foreigners. It's that they are marrying people who worship foreign gods. And oftentimes as I deal with couples who are about to get married, they'll say, well, we're we're so attracted to each other physically. We love to do the same things recreationally. We went to the same colleges for heaven's sake. We, We have so much in common. But can I just say, if you had everything else in common, but didn't have in common a deep and personal commitment to Jesus Christ, the rest of it pales by comparison, because the bottom line for us is not physical, it's not recreational, it's not socioeconomic, it's not cultural, it's not educational, it's spiritual. It's about relationship with God. And when we have God in common, we can work through everything else. But if we have everything else in common and not God in common, it's very, very difficult. I mean, just think about it. I see these signs from time to time, these flags, you know, a house divided, you know, and you've got an Aggie who's married a Longhorn. See, that would make for a very bad Thanksgiving every year. But it's just one day a year. It's just one day a year. They play each other in football on Thanksgiving. And that would make for one bad day. But if you don't have God in common, then that's an everyday thing. It means that, that you're isolated. When you're with the people of God, you feel estranged from your spouse. When you're with your spouse, you don't share the things of God in common. And let me just say a couple things about this. This is not to say that the spouse who's not a Christian can't become a Christian. Of course, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, So live in marriage that you would lead your unbelieving spouse to Christ. There's certainly families within my family. There are examples of that of unbelievers married to believers. So that certainly happens and that person can be one to Christ. This is not to say, by the way, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, you just jettison the relationship. That 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 to 15 are written precisely for that, that, that the believing spouse is to stay committed in that relationship because it gives the unbeliever and the children a chance in a godly home to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's, it's not to say that we're to jettison that relationship. But can we just agree together as a covenant community that on this side of marriage, we could commit ourselves and say, I will not marry a person 
who is not a believer. This, let me tell you, this, this in many ways vindicates the singleness. Some of our brothers and sisters have chosen to remain single for this very reason. Rather than compromise and marry an unbeliever, they have said, I will, I will be married to the Lord as long as I live. And if I find a spouse who loves the Lord, I will marry that person if God leads. But I will not marry an unbeliever. And the church ought to applaud, support, and encourage single adults who have that kind of commitment to the Lord. Because this side of marriage, we can say, I'm not going to marry an unbeliever. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? I'm not, you know, I grew up just like many of you did in, in Baptist circles where, you know, you, you couldn't even date a Nazarene. I mean, you just, you know, you, you just, you know, Jesus was a Nazarene, but John was a Baptist. And so, you know, there was just no mixing the two. But, but I want to be a voice to say, just let me just be very clear this morning. That the commonality is that you both believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you both are committed to him. And my encouragement would be that you would meet somebody, not just, you know, well, they were baptized when they were a kid and they've never been back to church. But but rather that that's a person who has a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ. Because on a foundational level, when you share that spiritual foundation with another believer, you know, I'm not as so much concerned about denomination. But when you share that common foundation of belief in Jesus Christ, that sets the stage for what I would call that spiritual intimacy sets the stage for soulish intimacy where you're just best friends with each other. And then that leads to that kind of life intimacy that he describes. God has made them one. Now, God designed marriage that way. And I want us to think in those terms because for the people of Israel, it was a problem. And they had spouses. You know, the great example is Solomon who had so much wisdom. He could ask God for anything. He said, give me wisdom. God gives him great wisdom. He impresses the world with his wisdom. He accumulates great wealth. And then in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, but Solomon loved many foreign women and these women brought their gods with them and he built altars to their gods. You know, the wisest man in the world fails at this point. And it not only brought great misery to him, but it brought misery to his family for generations that followed down to, you know, he's of the, the tribe of Judah. And then Judah, you see in the end here, some hundreds of years later, they are desecrate. God says, you're desecrating my sanctuary when you marry a person who doesn't worship the same God. We have one father, one creator. Why would you marry a person who doesn't believe in that God, who doesn't have a relationship with that God. The second issue that he brings up, as covenant believers, we not only take theology seriously, but we refuse to treat our spouses treacherously. We keep the faith with our spouses. And he says they're coming to worship, verse 13, and they're just flooding the altar with tears, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, because they just don't feel close to God. And it's like God's not answering them, and God says, look, I've been watching, and you have treated your spouse Treacherously, Just a, a testimony. I cannot be right with God and mistreat Melanie simultaneously. I cannot do that. God, I'm, the minute my life is not right with Melanie, at some level my relationship with God is compromised and I have to be right with her in order to be right with him. This is what he is saying. So if you treat your spouse treacherously, and notice just, first of all, the description of marriage, because I think it's very tender as he describes it with three expressions. He says uh, in verse 14, he talks about the wife of your youth. And I've looked back recently Uh, at the album, you know, where Melanie and I, we were 21 and 20. I mean, my parents were 18 and 18, but we were 21 and 20 and entered into marriage. And, um, you know, she's the wife 
of my youth. And whenever I think about that, and I think about 25 years together, I think about that story in Genesis, you know, where Jacob, he just says, um, you know, I will work as long as it takes to get to marry Rachel. I will, I work as, and so he works for seven years and his father-in-law deceives him. It says he worked seven years for Rachel and it seemed like a few days. And I asked Melanie about that. I said, now he worked seven years, few days. We've been married 25 years. How long does it feel? She said, it feels like five minutes. Like really? Underwater, she said. Five minutes (laughs) underwater. And she told me to tell you after the last service, she said, tell them I did not say that. And I said, but you did think it. And she didn't answer. So I'm still clear. (laughs) What the scripture teaches is that we have a commitment to that person whom we marry and that we ought to maintain that commitment. And he says that person becomes your partner. That's a beautiful word. It's the only time it's used in the scriptures. Your wife is your partner. Your husband is your partner. That means you share the things of life. And Dennis Rainey has said, one of the problems in marriages these days is that there's not a shared ministry. And if you don't share ministry together, every year we have VBS on our anniversary, you know, and we just shared that ministry through the years. And I love sharing ministry with Melanie. I love watching her serve the Lord in this community of joy with me and use her spiritual gifts. And my encouragement would be to find a ministry that you can share together. It's better than riding a dual bicycle together. It's, it's learning to love the Lord publicly together in the context of the church. He says, the wife of your marriage covenant. In other words, you made a commitment And that commitment was before God and these witnesses that until death alone should part, let that be in your marriage today. Let that be your guide. Now, he he says, I hate divorce. He doesn't say I hate divorcees. I thought about this this week. It'd be like if somebody said to you they lost their job or they lost a family member or they found out they had cancer. You might say something like, oh, I hate that. You wouldn't say, I hate you because you lost your job, or I hate you because you have cancer. You would say, I hate that you're dealing with that. In that same way, God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorcees, but he hates the devastation that it brings. He, he purposed that we would become, here's the description, that we would become one, that we would share our lives. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about, he says, we think marriage is about us and about our feelings, but marriage is really about generational blessing, blessing the generations that follow. And the challenge for us is not just to say, well, my love will sustain my marriage, but sometimes to let my marriage sustain my love. That is, until the love catches up, the marriage is always there as a reminder of the commitment I made before God. And as he describes this, he says, this was God's purpose, but they've not taken marriage seriously. As he describes it, they've broken faith with each other. Somebody said in Chicago in the Gold Coast neighborhood, there was a billboard recently. And the billboard simply said, life is short, get a divorce. There was an attorney who was advertising and had this picture of this this man and this woman sort of looking at each other across the room. And they're going to choose to end their marriage because of their infatuation with each other. They're going to end their own marriages. And, And looking at that picture, an alderman in Chicago would stand for it made them take the billboard down because of a technicality they hadn't followed the right procedures and asking for the permit and then he said this he said what they should have done was picture divorce as it really is it's not a woman and a man looking at each other in attraction across the room it's more like an eight-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl holding on to daddy's coat sleeves as he walks out the door that's what it's really like and if they painted that picture 
then people would understand. Those who've been through divorce understand that pain. Our family has had divorce within our family, and I know that agony, and I just want to say there's redemption and there is healing, but on this side of divorce, could we say, I will stay married to this person for the rest of my life? God intends for them to be one. And he says, why? So that there might be godly offspring. We must not think. You know, so often these days we, we think of marriage in terms of what's in it for me. A recent survey said, um, couples said, marriage is more about three to one. They said marriage is more about mutual pleasure than it is about creating safety and stability and dependability for children. But the scripture gives a very different picture of that. It's a very selfish view of marriage that says, but what about me? What do I feel? No, it's about the generations that follow. My dad uh, came to town this week to watch my three little nephews who live down inside the loop. And so I took Casey to meet them for lunch one day and we were sitting there at lunch and my dad pulled out these pictures from our family from way back. Uh, his great grandfather is one of his heroes and he had a picture I've never seen before. My great grandfather, my great grandmother Brooks sitting together on a, on a bench. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't overly affectionate. I mean, the picture was, it was kind of like, you know, I told you I loved you the day we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. You know, it was more like that. But the thing was, they were together and they were sitting there on that bench and it was a beautiful picture. And then my dad shows me, he's just showing the generations and he pulls out the picture of his mom and dad and him and his brother. And they're standing there and these two little toe-headed boys, you know, and then here's the mom and the dad and his mom, Beulah, you know, a word for heaven. Uh, uh, Beulah's got a, a hat on. So I think they're going to church and they're smiling and they're happy. And this was before everything broke loose in their lives. And I'm just looking at that picture and I'm thinking, here's a grandfather and grandmother who till death did them part, stayed together. And then here's a father and mother and somewhere along the line, I'm not judging anything. I Man, life is hard and marriage is hard. But somewhere along the line, they, you know, when my dad was about 10 years old, they, they parted ways. And recently, my dad was here in worship with us in the 1130 service. It was, I'll, I'll never forget it as long as I live. He's standing there holding a hymn book with my son Chase. And they're singing together from the same hymn book. That was all I could do to hold it together that morning. Just watching them sing together. My dad just kind of told me that day later, we were walking. He said, you know... I always wanted to sing from the hymn book, but, you know, he, he had some trouble reading when he was young. And he said, I could never, by the time I figured out what the word was, they were on to the next word. He said, this church was hard. And I'd go to Sunday school and they'd call on me to read. And that was hard. And, you know, my heart just went out to him as he described that. And I was just looking at that picture this week of his mom and dad in happier days. And I just thought how different my dad's life might have been if mom and dad had found a way with God's help to keep it together. Just how different his life might have been. And it just reminded me someday, somebody somewhere is probably going to meet for lunch somewhere and they're going to pull out old pictures. And there's going to be a picture of me and Melanie. And here's my commitment. It's not going to be, oh, that was before everything broke loose with them. But rather that generations that follow will look at that picture and say, and they loved each other all the way through the finish line. And this is not a judgment on mistakes made in the past. This is a statement for the future. This is a commitment going forward that you and I can make and say, as God is our witness, because He is our witness, 
We are committed to each other for the sake of the generations that follow. So marriage is not just about the individuals, but it's about culture. It's about society. It's about generational blessing. It's God's intention to bless the generations that follow so that we stay together. There's a beautiful little picture in in a book and in the book, it's an Ann Tyler book. And in the book, she has a, a character who works at a nursing home. And he's been through a divorce. And he works at this nursing home. And he takes care of all these people who've been married 50 plus years. And it occurs to him one day, they never ask the question, did I marry the right person? Instead, after 50 years of just being together and loving each other, they have become the right people. Or should I say, the only people for each other. This is a beautiful portrait of what God intends. And you say, I, you know, preacher, you, you're, you're, you're swimming against stream, uh, the stream. here. You're a salmon trying to go upstream if you're trying to preach about cultural stability through marriage. But I read this week, and Elie Wiesel, you saw him perhaps in the news this week with the president there at Buchenwald. And Elie Wiesel has a character uh, in one of his books who's a preacher of righteousness in ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. And he preaches there while the people are murdering each other and stealing from each other and living in immorality. He preaches every day the truth and the, the, the story of righteousness. And at first they're bemused by him. They listen to him. But after a time, they no longer listen. The people who are murdering keep on murdering. And the wise people in the culture just remain silent. The wise people remain silent. And the preacher keeps on preaching. A little boy feels sorry for him and says, you preach so passionately. Don't you see? There's no hope. These people are not going to change. You're not going to change these people. And the preacher said, I know I'm not going to change all of these people. And the little boy said, then why do you keep on preaching so passionately, so powerfully in favor of righteousness? And the man said, look, I know I may not change all of them, but I'm desperately concerned that they will not ultimately change me. So I keep on preaching and I can't change every situation, but I can covenant together with you as a community of joy and say to you, we may not change the way everybody in this culture lives, but we can do something about the way we live. And we don't have to be caught up in the flow of immorality in our world. We don't have to be changed by the world. With God's help, we can live the dream that God has given us. This side of marriage, we can say, I will not marry an unbeliever and hold our ground fast. And this side of divorce, we can say, that will not be a part of our lives. We commit ourselves in the presence of God and these witnesses to live for Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your great grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Our failures, my failures, our sins are not hidden from you, Lord. But today, Lord, we come to you asking that you would forgive us of our sins and you would give us a new beginning and you would help us, I pray today, Lord, to stand strong for you in our relationships as a witness to the world that our God is faithful and he has called us to be faithful people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.